have you ever been on the edge spiritually where you felt like you were you you couldn't hold on any longer that your very faith was in question and it was confusing and you didn't know how to maybe put it into words exactly but you were just hanging on the verge of what felt like just destruction you know that you were about to just lose it that's what psalm 73 is about but it's also about that in hindsight he has gone through that trial and he's come out the other end and now he has a way to minister to those who might experience the same thing. So this is for those who may struggle because of doubts that they can't handle. Things they can't understand. That's what Psalm 73 is about. Why is this appropriate? Because here we are talking about apologetics. And it's possible when you go and move in the realm of defending the word of God that you can start to lean on your own understanding in an unhealthy way. And this opens up the idea that if you can't answer every question, then you can be attacked because, oh, but I don't know the answer of who really wrote Job. Like, I don't know. Oh, your faith isn't real. You know, I mean, it's like it's, it's irrational, but yet we can still be attacked through these things. So here, Psalm 73, it says it's a psalm of Asaph. And that, that part of the psalms where it has a title, the, a psalm of Asaph, that is actually part of the scriptures. That's actually, even though there's not a verse number there, they started the verse below it, but that's actually part of what was originally written there. Asaph was a, was a, a good dude in the scriptures. He was a friend of David's. In fact, he like worked in David's kingdom as a songwriter, singer, master of the choir. He had multiple instruments that he helped either invent or innovate in some way. <coughs> Pardon Asaph seems as though he was a deeply spiritual man and he had a worship ministry, but on a big scale because it was for the nation, right? And so he would, he would direct a choir and lead a school where he taught people how to do these sorts of things. So you can read about him. You get little, little hints of who he is throughout the scripture, but that's the Asaph, the Asaph that's connected to David. Now he says in Psalm 73 verse 1, truly God is good to Israel to such as are pure in heart. Now, this is the conclusion, and it's in verse 1. So he's telling us the conclusion ahead of time, like those shows where it starts and you see the end scene, and you're like, what's that about? And then it unwinds and tells you the whole story. So that's exactly what's going to happen here. The conclusion is God is good. God is good. And Asaph, in his psalm, he's about to complain. He's about to voice his, his irritations and complaints and struggles. But before he gets into his struggles, he stops and says, Truly, hey, before I say anything else, I want you to know God is good. He is good to Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. It is worth it to serve God. It is worth it to trust God. It is worth it to wait on the Lord. Don't worry. I will conclude with that. So don't get the wrong idea when you hear what I say next. I think it's interesting because some people see David as a complainer in the book of Psalms. And Asaph here is a complainer in the book of Psalms. But they, what they do is they just pull a few verses out, but they don't read the whole psalm. Even when they complain... It's got to be read in context, and you realize they're not just griping and complaining like irresponsible children, right? What they're doing is they're, they're helping us to learn how to deal with our own complaints in a godly way. Where David, for instance, always concludes with, yet I will trust in the Lord, yet I will hope in my God. Yet God is my shelter, yet God is my strength, yet he is my present help in time of need. And so there's, there's a way to go about dealing with our struggles, and we're looking at that here today. <clears throat> so the conclusion here, God is good to Israel. Asaph is constantly concerned 
with how God is represented by his life. He doesn't just take the gloves off and feel like he can just say what he wants because he realizes what he says matters and it impacts others. So he, he doesn't do that. I've heard this before. I've heard even leaders do it where they just kind of uh, vent and you're like, wow, you just, like, where's your conclusion of trusting the Lord in that, you know? And, and they don't realize that they're causing others to, to stumble in that. So verse 2, so God is good, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So from start to finish, Asaph is now going to take us through his spiritual battle that he experienced, where his feet almost stumbled, where he nearly slipped, spiritually speaking, and in his faith in God, his Jewish faith, he nearly fell off of it or fell away. At least that's how it felt at the time. It almost caused him to seriously fall down on his faith, maybe to fall into great sin, maybe to fail to hold fast to a godly life, maybe to fail to even trust or believe. It was a serious trial. So that's why he starts out with God is good, because now I'm going to tell you how icky it was. Verse 3, for I was envious of the boastful. Envious of the boastful. He had envy for arrogant people he saw around him. Why? Well, it was when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I had envy for them because I saw how much the wicked were prospering. This one verse, verse 3, summarizes his whole struggle. He'll now go on to just describe this issue, right, as he goes through Psalm 73. But his struggle is, why are the wicked prospering? This doesn't compute with what I know. I mean, read Proverbs. It would seem that you just have to wait a little bit, and their wickedness will destroy them from the inside out. It would seem that, I mean, you know, I see a man doing wicked things, having wicked schemes, and then he succeeds, and he boasts, and he's arrogant. And now I'm envious. I'm like, well, I wish I had what he has. I wish I had what he has. So he wasn't envious of them initially. Initially, he was like, ew, you're doing wrong. That's not going to work out for you. And then, well, it looks like it's working out. What do I, how do I process this? And it really messed him up. Verse 4, he says, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. He watched, he's literally thinking of people he's known in life. And he goes, I watched them for years. I remember when they died, peacefully in their sleep. No justice. Now, it's, it's not that he wants to satisfy his wicked desire to see them suffer. That's not it. He wants to see justice. I think this is, I don't think this is an evil thing. He just wants justice. It's like, you know, um, an evil man does evil things, and then one day they find him peacefully in his old age, and they're like, oh, there he is. He lived a nice, pleasant life and died peacefully in his sleep, and you're like, that's just not right. It's just not just. So he wants to justify godliness. He wants to see some pangs in their death, some, some difficulties in their life, even at the point of their death, just to, just to say, sort of God divinely saying from heaven, I do not approve. I do not approve. You won't get away with it. But he didn't see this, and it really freaked him out. I think that this actually is a, is a healthy desire in Asaph's life. I don't think he's being wicked or hateful or evil. I think he just wants to see God be just. He wants to see the justice of God, and that is a good thing. God's justice is good. Um, it glorifies God. In fact, <clears throat> let me read to you guys. This is a great principle for life. Isaiah 5.16, it says, But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment... And God, who is holy, shall be hallowed in righteousness. 
So God will be hallowed or shown to be holy in his righteousness. He will be exalted or lifted up on high in a glorious way when he judges. So th this, is, this is to say that when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden and judgment falls, it shows his holiness. It would have been wrong had he not done it. It would have left us all very confused. So there is a justice and a goodness in God's judgment that is actually appropriate. <clears throat> this world is a little confused about that because sometimes we think that, you know, like everyone, it, it's interesting how, how this has happened over the last, I don't know, maybe it's just the last 15, 20 years, but it seems like it to me. Um, I'm not that old, so I, I almost wish I was so I could just like have that perspective. But, <clears throat> but over the last maybe 15, 20 years, it seems like every bad guy is given a sob story that makes you in the end feel like, oh, I can't really be upset with him for being bad. Of course he's bad, his mom was mean. But of course if you get into her story, maybe she's mean because her mom was mean. And maybe she's mean because her dad was mean. And maybe he's mean because, you know, and <clears throat> you, you end up getting to this point where it's kind of a victim mentality of life. Nobody really does wrong because they're bad, they're just doing wrong because they're misunderstood, confused, a little frustrated, and they've been treated badly. But God, I mean, think about this. If that's true, then how could God ever send anyone to hell? It would be wrong. And because of this, people do think hell is wrong. Because they start with a victim mentality of the world. Everybody, hey man, anyone who's treating you bad, you don't know what their day's been like. And my thought is, you're right. I don't know and I want to know what their day's been like. But it doesn't justify them treating people badly. <laughs> sure, I want to know, but it doesn't make it okay. It's still bad. It's still wrong. Imagine if a rapist walked before a judge and you're sitting there watching him walk in thinking, yes, finally he's going to get his because he committed this horrible crime against this, these poor lady or this, these poor women. And then the judge goes, you know what? I'm a loving judge. I'm a kind judge. I'm going to just set you free. And the rapist walks out dancing. And he's singing. He's like, yeah, boy, that judge is the nicest guy I've ever met. Woo! And he goes off and he just keeps doing his thing. We would look and we would say, that judge is evil. All of a sudden, it wouldn't be about how bad the rapist was. We'd be like, look at the judge, look how evil he is. This is why God doesn't forgive us without cleansing us, making us born again so that we become new people, so we, do, we live new lives. So we don't just continue with the sin in heaven, and we're not going to sin. We're not going to desire it even. How glorious is that? Let me read to you another example for this biblical principle that God is glorified in judgment. Ezekiel 28, verses 20 through 23. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Sidon, and prophesy against her, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, I will be glorified in your midst. These sound almost like a contradictory phrase. God, be glorified in our midst. As a believer, I say that, and it means one thing. But when God looks at the, the wickedness of the world, the those who reject him, and says, I will be glorified in your midst. It's a different kind of glorification, isn't it? He says, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and am hallowed in her. For I will send pestilence upon her and blood in her streets. The wounded shall be judged in their midst by the sword against her on every side, then they shall know that I am the Lord. So now it's not proper for me to act like I'm the executor of God's judgment, because I'm obviously not. Judge not. This is the idea of judging not. This is the idea of um, uh, Romans, which it talks about, uh, give place to wrath. God will repay. 
so he's the one doing it, not me. He glorifies himself here. But it's good and just when he does it. And even hell, as a consequence of sin, glorifies God in the end because he's showing his goodness by punishing wickedness. And that's, inevitably, we all glorify God one way or the other. But every soul will bring glory to God. So here's what bothers Asaph. I watched them live. I watched them die. How did that bring you glory, Lord? You know what it brought glory to? Their wickedness, their sin. And then you know what? Something weird started to happen. It made me want what they had. So he's being very honest. This is why he starts with truly God is good, because it will just throw you completely off if you, if you read this apart from it. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. And he looks and he sees these particular wicked men and he says, what blows me away is that they don't even seem to suffer the normal sufferings of life. These particular wicked men he's talking about, they've got it made. They're rich, they're well-known, they're well-liked, and they seem healthy and they seem strong and everything seems to go their way. And this this really trips him out. They seem to have less trouble, even though they do all these sins. I don't know if you can think of examples in your life of people you've seen in this type of situation. But Asaph, uh, he saw it. Verse 6, therefore pride serves as their their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. The idea of eyes bulging. The eyes are the, the, the tools we use to see things that we want. I'm like, oh, look at that car. Oh, look at that house. Oh, look at that lawn. Oh, look at that person. Oh, look at this purse. That's for the girls. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) And you're you're seeing things that you want. And that's what the eyes do. And their eyes bulge with abundance because they take in everything they want. They see it, they take it. They see it, they take it. They see it, they take it. What do I want? I'm going to get it. I'm going to take it. It's mine. So their eyes are bulging with abundance. Pride serves as their necklace. A necklace is, is something you decorate yourself with to show, to show off, to show to everybody. And so theirs is pride. They're like, look at, my, look at my arrogance, my pride. When you see me, you look at my pride and you think it's part of my quality. You think arrogance is something good because of the way I do it. And that's what they do. And I mean, I can think of example after example of people nowadays who are like this. The arrogant and the boastful and the proud. In fact, there are those who are worldly successful who will stand in front of a group of teens and they're trying to give them a pep talk and they're like, you can do it. You're, you're amazing and don't let anyone tell you different. You're always awesome. You're always wonderful. You're glorious. And they're telling them the things they tell themselves. They're just full of pride. And God's more interested in faithfulness than he is in awesomeness. I think. But, but yet, this is, this is their thing. Pride's their necklace, which is a bad thing. Violence covers them like a garment, so they tend to be violent or aggressive or hurtful towards others. They're bullies. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They got more than they could possibly even need. They literally think arrogance is a good thing. This is kind of a counterculture moment, but pride is a bad thing. Whether it's white pride, black pride, brown pride, whatever you want to call it, school pride, pride is bad. Pride is bad. And I understand a parent looking at their child who's accomplished well and saying, hey, I'm proud of you. But they certainly don't mean pride. You know what I mean? They're just saying, I have joy in you. I take pleasure in seeing what you're doing and accomplishing. I get that. I I understand that. But this is, we're talking about pride here. Okay. Pride is bad. Pride is an evil quality. 
the gay pride movement is interesting because it literally just takes homosexuality or homosexual behaviors, as, which is a sin, and then says, now let's add pride, which is arguably a worse sin. So we'll have gay pride. We'll have sin, sin. <laughs> it's, it's like, and, and, and notice this, that, that when you take, took pride in our, in our historical culture and you mixed it with homosexuality, that's when it took off and went into crazy dark places. That's when it happened. And, um, and there's, there's stuff, more stuff coming down the road. But instead, if we're going to boast at all, we should boast in the Lord. That's what scripture says. I should have a pride, a sense of pride in God and not me. I look at my weaknesses and I boast in that. I'm like, look, God can use me even though I'm weak. Man, he's amazing. He is amazing. Galatians 6.14, it says, But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So I, I have a, a sense of boasting, but it's only in him. But here, I don't think humility means like always like speaking with a higher pitched voice and like lifting your eyebrows more. You know, this is not humility, but this, but I mean, I've seen people who think that that's what humility is. So humility is not a lack of confidence. It's not even a lack of certainty. It's just knowing my rightful place and knowing God's rightful place. If I know God's rightful place, I'm automatically humbled. Automatically. So I boast in him. I remember a student years ago who was in our youth ministry. She had had some friends that she grew up in the church with. And then the, this particular boy who was a good friend of hers, he started using drugs. He started living a very worldly life. He was messing around with girls. This is all in junior high. This stuff always, always starts in junior high, in case you didn't know. All the major uh, life temptations hit in junior high, not when they go to college. Um, they, had, of course, continue to hit all through, but, <laughs> but it starts in junior high. That's when it starts. But the, the issue she had is she looked at him and she saw the stuff he was doing and she's like, I feel like I have to separate from him now because I can't be around that, that stuff. But she looked at him and she goes, but he looks so happy. And so she talked to her dad about this, and I, I found out about the conversation later. And she was like, Dad, they, they look happy. He looks happy. And so her dad assured her, don't worry, honey. He is not really happy. She's like, okay. She observes him some more, and she's like, he sure looks happy. Now, you can imagine the mind of a junior higher struggling with this issue and asking the same questions Asaph is asking. If it's really bad, then why does he seem to be enjoying it? If it's really bad, then why does he seem so happy? Verse 8, he says, They scoff and speak wickedly. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. There's nothing that they are not willing to mock or ridicule or challenge or scoff at. Not God, not people. Asaph notices not only that they're committing sins and they're being successful, but then he notices their attitude issues going on, right? They, they say things about God, about people. They boast. In effect, they have a pride parade about their issues and they enjoy their wickedness. And this is like today as well. We see this. We see a boasting going on over wickedness. You know, one of the things that really bugs me, can I share with, this with you? I really, 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 really am bothered and irritated, like pet peeve, by these videos that show something happening that's funny and then all of a sudden the sunglasses and maybe like a, a, like a, like a cigar or joint or something pops in someone's mouth and it says, thug life. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you, social media people, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen the thug life videos. 
And this is what they'll do is they'll take like say uh, you know a bird like a, a um, um, what are those beach birds um, seagull. seagull complicated stuff here today um, a seagull you know walks into a liquor store grabs a bag of, of food and walks out of the liquor store and it's so low that the liquor store owner doesn't see and then they pause the video and then the sunglasses pop on it says thug life I hate this because thugs are thugs. Like, literally, that's a word that means a wicked person who steals and robs and beats up other people. That's what the word means. Thug life. It should just be, you should just show guys rotting in prison and then put thug life. That's what it should say. I also really can't stand the idea that our culture glorifies the term pimp. Pimp. These guys are wickedly evil. Wickedly evil. Horribly evil. And it's glorified. I'm going to pimp my ride. And I'm just thinking, like, what you need to do is fix your worldview. That's, it's just, it's evil. Or, you know, the glorification of the mafia, like the idea that, oh, we're going to pretend that, uh, that, that we're mafia. I love accents, okay? I like pretending to have an Italian accent or Mexican accent or whatever, Jamaican accent. I just, I just love accents. It's not, if, if it's, if it can't be racism because I love the accents. I'm not actually making fun of them. I kind of wish I had one. Californians, we don't have an accent, I don't think. It's, we're just <laughs> kind of boring. But when we see the, the, the mafia or the, or the gangster sort of glorification, like, like living as a gangster is considered a good thing, like gangster rap. Like if, if, if it was up to me, anybody who put out a gangster rap album, there'd immediately be a police investigation of, that, of those people. Oh, you're, you're, you're saying you're, you're in a gangster thug life. Okay, great, perfect. You just confessed. Let's go get the proof. Let's put you behind bars where you belong. But people will play this in their car and they'll imagine themselves part of it and they start dressing the part to try to imitate sinful behaviors and lifestyles. And so here's the thing. They're boasting and they're sinful and they say it and they're saying things like, let's go kill the police and stuff like that. These are evil, horrible things and they're making money hand over fist. And like Asaph, I'm like, what? That's evil. That's messed up. So indirectly, the implication is that God doesn't care. The implication is there is no God in heaven or there is no justice. And that's what hits Asaph, and that's what really bothers him. He's believed that there is justice. He's believed that there's a God who's going to do what's right. So verse 10, it says, Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? This idea of waters of a full cup. Well, verses 10 and 11 are talking about the observers. Not just Asaph, but the other people who are watching these thugs who are getting away with their sinful lifestyles. And they're observing, and they drink the waters of a full cup. In other words, they're drinking the poison that these evil people are dishing out. They're following the worldview of the wicked. So it's affecting the populace. So the populace is, is romanticizing sinful behavior and acting like it's a good thing. And he's really bothered by this. In fact, in verse 11, they say, how does God know and is there knowledge in the most high? The term most high there is Elion, El Elion, which is God, the supreme ruler. They're going, does the supreme ruler even know what's going on? In other words, they are also doubting and he's seeing this and he's holding it all in, but it's really bothering him. They think, obviously, God's not doing anything. This was Job's issue, right? God, how is this just? What's happening to me? This was Hosea. Hosea had trouble with this, if you read through his book. He had trouble with seeing the, the circumstances and the, the, the issues that were going on, and he couldn't understand how God's justice worked out with that. 
How could a holy God allow so much evil, right? That's the point here. How could a holy God allow this sort of evil? And I love that the Bible addresses these issues because these are our issues today that we face. A lot of people deal with this particular issue in Psalm 73. So the observers are falling for it, and this really gets to Asaph. So then he finally concludes, not like Psalm 1, Right, the ungodly are not so, they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. No, 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 not, not like Psalm 1 that says that the righteous, the one who meditates on the word of God day and night and, and follows it, that he's going to be like a tree planted by streams of water. That's not how he feels. He feels this way, verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Here's the ungodly. Here's the ungodly. And now, even in our business communities, this is like our culture today. They go, okay, you want to have your Christian principles, but you know, that's not really going to work in our business world. You want to have your Christian principles, that's not going to work if you want to actually succeed as a lawyer. You want to have your Christian principles, that's fine. But politics is not for you then. And then they basically want us to check our Christian principles at the door to participate in living in this world. To which I say, no. <laughs> no. I'd rather fail as a believer than succeed as the ungodly, but we'll get to that. So his summary is this. Things get better and better for the wicked, and they seem to get worse for the believers. And now he's just, he's spiritually, he's flipping out. He just can't handle it. Verse 13, excuse me. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. He's basically saying, look, I have honored you, God. I have served you, God. I have kept myself pure, but now I feel like I'm, I'm suffering impurities, and they're, they're thriving in sin. So this is what he feels. There's no point to my, my, my sinless behaviors. And this, I think, is the real target of this attack in his heart. The spiritual warfare, the temptation, the doubt, what doubt often is for is to get us to say to ourselves, you know what? I'm just going to go try those sins that I've been wondering about. I'm going to go experiment with the wickedness that I have so far resisted and refused. That so many times, those who are experiencing attacks of doubt will, will experience an open door of sin. Oh, I'm really thinking about going and sinning now because all that was holding me back is in question. So that really it's an issue just to get us to fall, that this spiritual attack is to get us to sin, which is why when I've talked, when I counsel people and they tell me they're having a challenge of doubt, I say, don't sin. I just assume that you're going to be challenged in this area. Do not sin. Do not open the doors to sins right now. You're going to be tempted, but that is going to take your trial and multiply it times 100. It's just going to make things go disastrously bad. He says he's washed his hands in innocence and cleansed his heart in vain because he's been plagued, he's been chastened. And of course, he suffers, you know. He does something wrong. Maybe he's not even doing anything wrong and he goes through hardships and trials in life and he's like, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. That's how he feels. Now, that's how he felt. Now we're going to get to the good part. <laughs> now we're going to get to the better part. But he says this. He says, if I had said this, verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I'm going to say out loud how I feel. Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. This means that Asaph kept all this stuff hidden in his heart. He's going through the work he's doing. He's still a worship leader. He's still having an impact in the, in the congregation of Israel. But he's observing things that freak him out. 
he can't sleep at night, he can't handle it, he's overwhelmed, and he hasn't told anybody. He could take, and I'm sure it was tempting, to just get up there and be like, you know what, forget this, I can't do this today. You know, let me tell you how I feel. But he realized that if he said that, he would stumble everybody who heard him. He realized that it would wreck them, it would mess them up. And so he didn't, he kept it to himself. And later on, he's really glad he made that decision. Later on, he goes, oh, I'm so glad I didn't say this out loud. I would have been what? Untrue to the generation of your children. I would have led them into the deception I was experiencing. I would have messed them up. And so here's where I, I think the, uh, to be honest, can be sometimes a bad idea. When I'm experiencing doubt and I know that what I'm experiencing is a deceptive attack, what I don't want to do is just broadcast it to the world so that they can fall for the thing that I'm struggling with. I don't want to do that. I want to go and I want to get spiritual help from people who I know and care about, who I can trust. Yes, I don't want to keep totally silent, but I don't want to go and, okay, here, update my Facebook status. Seriously doubting that there's even a God. Like, um, why are you, you know, like, are you helping somebody right now? Are you, and there's, there's these destructive desires, you know. Spurgeon talks about how he had a time, Charles Spurgeon, where he actually wanted he felt this incredible temptation to openly, outwardly blaspheme God. It was really weird. I mean, you read about it in his story. He goes, I was just plagued by this, and I don't know where it came from. And he was bothered and bothered. He finally visited a friend, and he shared it with him. He was completely honest, and his friend said, do you desire this? Do you enjoy the idea of this? Are you thinking, oh, yeah, I want to do this? And he goes, no, I hate every moment of it. And he goes, oh, well, then it's not from you, so don't worry about it. Which, which is an interesting eye-opener for him to be like, oh, so I'm just being attacked. It's not like a temptation. Like, you know, when someone hands me a hamburger that I'm tempted from within. <laughs> I want this hamburger. If someone hands me a plate of poop, if I had this voice in my head, like, Mike, you want to eat that poop? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to eat the poop. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not from me. And so he was experiencing this thing that was actually, it was an attack on him, not really from him. I think that's a good analogy. I think you should, you should write that down and use it. Poop makes for good analogies. You just, you just have to know where to, where to apply it. Yes, my youth pastor is showing. So he won't say it out loud. And I think this is so good. This is so good. Too many of us speak in our frustration, and it ends up being untrue, and it's a shame. It, I, I'm just being honest. Honesty doesn't mean saying everything you think about. It just means not lying. <laughs> That's what it means, not lying. It doesn't mean celebrating doubt. So follow Asaph's example. He waited on the Lord, and the Lord answered, and the Lord strengthened him. And he found that as he internalized the issue, maybe he went to David, maybe he went to Nathan, or one of those godly men who he had access to. But what he didn't do is just like plant his doubt in others. And I've seen people do this. They experience doubt, and they misery loves company. And so they start planting it in other people. And, and this is, um, this, you're just a tool of the enemy at that point, unfortunately. So verse 16, it says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. So he goes into the intellectual zone. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to process this. I'm going to come to the conclusion. I'm going to, I'm going to muscle my way through this with my brain power. And he goes, it was too painful. I couldn't get it. He was literally in mental anguish. Verse 21, if you skip ahead, it tells us that his heart was grieved and his mind was vexed. And so he's experiencing mental anguish and emotional anguish. 
It's very intense. This is the kind of, I can't sleep tonight. Oh, I hate that the sun is going down because I'm going to have another horrible, sleepless night of despair. I know how that feels. Some of you know how that feels. These types of trials, your, your mind is overwhelmed, it's painful, your heart is grieved. It's real. It, it is real. When I was in my early 20s, I went through a season of doubt that was definitely a spiritual attack on my life. And it is actually what caused me to launch headlong into apologetics and studying the defense of the scriptures. Because all of a sudden, I had all these questions. Boom. And I'm like, I've been a believer and I've been following the Lord for years. And I had even studied some of these questions before, but all of a sudden I felt like I didn't know anything. So I get into it and I start reading books and reading books. I even interviewed and asked some Christians. I, I didn't want to cast doubt on them, but I just was like, what do you think about the following question? You know, I was like trying to do it in a way that wouldn't hurt them. And, but what I realized is that the believers, at least that I was talking to, they had no answers. And so it just made me not want to talk to them anymore about it. <laughs> I'm just not going to ask them anymore because they didn't seem to have any answers. Uh, they were just like, well, you know, pray. And, and that's true. But what they should have said was, I don't know. And um, yeah, but anyway, they just said, oh, just pray, you know, Mike. And I thought, oh gosh, trust me, I'm praying. I was going through this crazy, crazy doubt. Now here's what happened. In the long run, I actually chased down answers to my questions. I, I was like, has the Bible really been changed or not? And so I dig up the end and I go, wow, it's provably not been changed. I mean, I, I can't reasonably think it's been changed. Okay. What about, what about fulfilled prophecy? Not vague stuff, but like actual like that. Okay, right there. That's fulfilled prophecy. Okay. Saw it. Oh, but, but, but was that written after it happened or before? Let's, let's look this up. Let's read a book. Oh, it was written before. Oh. Okay. And then as I chased down doubt after doubt, question after question after question after question, I found that I was running out of questions. But I wasn't running out of doubt. It was really strange. I thought all of my serious intellectual doubts are answered. But I don't feel better. Why don't I feel better? And I realized that this was not an intellectual issue. And so I just had to put my faith in the Lord and wait. And wait. And wait. And one day the Lord gave me a word as I was reading through Genesis. And I got to the, to the passage in Genesis about the flood. And I was reading about how the flood waters began to recede. And I really felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me, Mike, this trial is going to start to go down. And just like the flood never happened like that again, it will never be like this again. And I just, I wrote it down and I thought, Lord, if, I don't know if that's you because I don't know anything. <laughs> but I wrote it down anyway and I just thought, we'll see. I hope so. And that's exactly what came to pass. And then, so then all of a sudden I would run into other believers and they'd have a question and I'm like, oh yeah, man, I had that question. <laughs> Rattle off the information, you know, and it ended up being something God used in a great way. And I realized out the other end of it that what the issue was, is I just had a lack of faith in general. I just had a general lack of faith. And no matter how much intellectual stuff I did, it wouldn't replace just waiting on the Lord and trusting in him that you can't think yourself into faith. You can't. This isn't to deride wisdom or intellect or knowledge or information because you know I love that stuff. It's just saying that's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. I love it. It's great. It's really great. But there's always a step of faith. There's always a decision to trust. And so he thinks how to understand it. He's, he's got mental anguish. He can't handle it. And then in verse 17, here's where it shifts. Here's where it changes. This is the good part, the really good part. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, 
Then I understood their end. He walks into the temple, the sanctuary of God, and he goes, God, you're going to judge them. What am I tripping on? The light goes on. Let's read on. He says, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation. As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. God's judgment is sleeping or waiting, but when it wakes up, boom, they will be filled with terror. It hit him. And when did it hit him? It hit him when he went into the sanctuary for what purpose? To worship. To offer to the Lord. He's experiencing all this doubt, but he still went there to go through the spiritual process of doing those spiritual things that he knew were just what he was supposed to do. Yep, that's what he did. He just continued doing what he should do. Reading his Bible, going to church, that sort of thing, basically. He's just doing those processes. And he goes in there to worship and suddenly a transformation happens and a light goes on as though there was this area of truth that he just couldn't see. And suddenly it became clear to him. What the mind couldn't figure out and the heart couldn't handle, worship cured. That's cool. I love that. I really, really love that. I don't see worship as a preparation for Bible study. I see worship as a purpose in and of itself. And I see it ultimately as for God. We worship for God. But man, I can't help but notice all the impact it has in me. That it sets my heart right, it gets my mind right, the Holy Spirit begins to work in my life immediately when I start to worship. I've seen this so many times where I just begin to worship and suddenly some issue I'm, I'm experiencing all of a sudden becomes clear. All of a sudden becomes clear and I, I think it's a beautiful thing. There is wisdom in worship. There's a certain wisdom we get as we worship the Lord. A perspective, you know. So it hits him that everything he's complaining about is prejudgment. Everything, their pride, their arrogance, their peaceful death is all pre-judgment. It's not the end of the story. He was thinking like an atheist when he should have been thinking like a believer. He was acting like death is the end, not thinking that death is just the deliverance to God. He thought again about the man on his deathbed, content and at peace, surrounded by family and friends, smiling as he breathed his last, and then he thought of the moment after that man's death, and he said what? Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. Imagine the wicked man who has paid for none of his sin in this life, who stands before God, full of his pride and arrogance. He will be consumed with terror. This is not something I'm happy about, but there's a sense in my heart that says, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified, God, in this. Do what is right, because you are right, and you are good, and you are just, and you are holy. It hit him. Everything that man had would be lost. It hit him that Psalm 1, yes, it says the wicked will not stand. It says they will not stand in the judgment. As you read Proverbs, look at it and ask yourself this. Is it really just about this life? Or are they truths, truths that are eventually? This is how it will pan out. And once it pans out, it'll be that way forever. And so these, these are good truths. There's about a, it's about a heritage of wisdom that carries down. So verse 21, now with all that wisdom, he reflects upon his previous like, disposition, how he was thinking about life. He says, thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant 
I was like a beast before you, speaking to God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. So that God's going to be taking him home, receiving him to glory. It's like everything's totally different, but nothing has changed. He still has this, he could have the same complaints, but now he has what? He has the wisdom of eternity. He's got the wisdom of God being the judge. He's got the wisdom of God's going to work it out in the end. And so his life is changed. His perspective is changed. And that's what we need. Man, I need my perspective to be eternal. I need to not see this life as all there is. It's not just like get married, have kids, buy a house. That's life. No, it's not. No, it's not. He says, you will guide me with your counsel, meaning he is once again, you know, he's, he's submitted to God's word. He's like, yep, I want to do what you say, Lord. I haven't cleansed my hands in vain because what? Afterward, you're going to receive me to glory. I should say this. Serving God does mean prosperity. It just doesn't mean it now. But there, there is a biblical prosperity preacher, but they're, they're talking about eternity, not about the present life. That's the thing. And so... Um, so he says, you will receive me into glory. He says that God is continually with him and that brings him comfort. He says that God holds him by his right hand. Just, just holding my hand, walking through life. That's how he describes this relationship with God. And he remembers what it means to be saved, what it means to follow God, what it means to know him. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? He has help and his help is God. He's like, who do I have to help me? You, God. And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. God, I have you and you are all that I need. And I would say in this, it's, it's good for us to realize, you know, God's not our boyfriend. It's true he's not our boyfriend, but that shouldn't diminish his role in our lives. He is far more than that. He is far greater than that. My relationship with God is greater than my relationship with my wife, not because anything's lacking there, but because it's God. It's God. I mean, this is, this is the greatest relationship you could ever have. And it's, we're not just preaching fluff. I love it because if I was to go to um, some other religious group and I was like, the greatest relationship you could have is your relationship with God. Isn't it amazing? They'd be like, uh, what? you know, because it just doesn't compute in other religions. But in Christianity, the true religion, you go in front of a group of Christians, you're like, man, your relationship with God is the best relationship. You They're just like this. Like, even now, you guys are like, yep, mm, yep, oh, that's true, that's true. Because we know it, because it's a truth that's known to our hearts and known to our lives. It is wonderful, it is awesome. So then he concludes, verse 26, my flesh and my heart fail. Not they might, but they just do. <laughs> my flesh and my heart fail. My flesh failing, I think, is my death. But my heart failing is my courage and my, my, my strength, my personal sense of strength. That will fail as well. But God is the strength of my heart, so he'll strengthen my heart in my daily battles, in my attacks, in my attacks of whatever they are, and he's my portion forever. So when this flesh dies, I'll be with him forever. He's my portion. Emotionally and mentally, I may not get this issue, but God is the strength of my heart. And he found this where? In the temple, when he just, just sat there to worship the Lord. I think that's so cool. Physically, I'll die, but God is my portion. And then verse 27, for indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Now he speaks of it in past tense. It hasn't happened yet, but he's already, it's like, oh, it's done, Lord. It's a done deal. They could boast and they could have proud and they could have arrogance. But you know what, God, you've already destroyed them. As he said, you set them in slippery places. The trap is already laid. The, the trigger has already snapped, you know, and it's already going on. 
the whole time, he thought God had not done the thing that he concludes God has already done. God, you're good. God, you're just. If, this, if, if I posted this online, I'd, I'd have to put hashtag wait for it <laughs> on the end, you know, because that's the idea. We're waiting for him. And verse 28, he said, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Notice that a, a, a psalm full of doubt is only given from a perspective of faith. It, it's given with the cure. The, the problem is given with the cure, and that's consistent in the scripture. We're not just sitting on problems, but we're given problems with cures, with solutions. It's good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Notice what happened when Job drew near, drew near to God, or rather God drew near to Job. Job's perspective totally changed. He humbled himself, he repented, and he just had trust in God no matter what. When Elijah was drawn near to God, when Peter, after having betrayed, denied, I should say, Jesus Christ, then later Jesus comes to him and he recommissions him, Peter, feed my sheep. He draws near. Paul, when Paul was going through suffering and being accused, he's then sent a message from the Lord saying, do not fear, I have many in this city, I'm with you. And so then he, with boldness, he goes out and proclaims. So there's like a goodness of just drawing near to God. There's an experiential relationship of drawing near to God that helps us through our struggles and battles. And I think Philippians 4, I'd like to conclude with this verse. You know the scripture. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, Notice what this will do. And remember what he said in Psalm 73. It will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Your overwhelmed hearts and minds. Your, the vexing that happens here. And this God will guard your heart and mind. They're under attack. But this will help guard it. So you take those prayers and in thankfulness you let your requests be made known. And God will take care of it. So I don't think necessarily that we're going to feel better right away. And who knows how long it was before Asaph did feel better? Maybe it's seasonal. I don't know. I mean, every, every struggle, every battle is different. We're not cookie-cutter people. But we know the solution lies in God, and the solution lies in our relationship with the Lord. Imagine this, if you would. As we're going through this apologetic stuff, and we continue doing it, I'm excited about doing it. But it will never replace faith. It will never replace a decision to trust the Lord. Imagine if you were the believers who existed before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and you heard all these accusations about how the Bible had been completely changed and rewritten. About how Isaiah 53 was just added in by Christians. Because the earliest you know, copy we had was from like 900 AD. And you just said, well, I don't know about that, but I trust the Lord. And then years later, your faith was confirmed when they dug up the Dead Sea Scrolls and found a thousand-year-prior copy that was the same, unchanged. That <clears throat> what if you were, you were the Christian who heard the, uh, the, the attacks against Scripture where they said, Pilate never existed. He was invented by the Gospel writers just to have a bad guy. And then they discovered the Pilate Stone. But what if it was before the Pilate Stone was discovered, which proved that Pilate was the governor of, of, uh, of that region of Judea? What if you were just like, you know what, I don't know about all that, but I just trust the Lord. God's proven himself to me enough for me to trust him in these things I don't know about. Or what if you were there before there was a response to any of the other criticisms that now it seems like we've got so much good answers and apologetics and stuff that's out there in the age of criticisms, we've got more answers than ever. 
But what if you existed before that answer was available and just the doubt was there? And so you just said, ah, you know what? I trust the Lord. And someone's like, well, you just have faith. And you're like, I do have faith, actually. <laughs> but it's faith grounded on truth. It's faith grounded on my experience with the Lord, grounded on the transformation the Holy Spirit's brought in my life, grounded on the truth of God's word, grounded on the reality of Jesus Christ. It's grounded on lots of things. But God's given me enough reasons to just trust him. So it's good to draw near to God. It's good to trust him. Evidence is good, of course, but it's got to lead us to that place of faith. It can't replace it. It can't replace it. It's, it's like an arrow on the path, you know? It's not the destination. So let's pray. Father, we ask for your help, Lord, because as we um, struggle with our own spiritual battles, it is good for us to draw near to you. So we pray even right now, Lord, draw near to us. Remind us of the goodness of God, of the sufficiency of, of you, Lord. Just you. Just how sufficient you are in our lives. That you're enough. And we pray, Lord, that we would be those who simply stand in comfort and faith and trust in the truth and goodness of God. That we be those, Lord, who can handle challenges by holding up that shield of faith. To quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. In Jesus' name. Amen.